You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And speaking of live theater and events, we couldn't have had a better guest for that than we had today. Uh, my guest was Cherie Engel, who is our first veteran playwright that we have had on the show. So we are finally closing the loop and coming full circle and uh, getting right into our wheelhouse of playwrights. And and it's actually, uh, there's good reasons why we haven't had a playwright on until now. For one thing, we were holding our playwriting competitions, uh, which we're still holding, but our first playwriting competition was still open. And it was, you know, I didn't want, I wanted to avoid all conflict of interest. So I didn't want to start inviting playwrights on that might submit work to us. And then it's awkward. And I, you know, I don't feel bad about interviewing them and giving them any sort of competitive advantage or I don't know, you know, it just makes things weird. So Cherie, uh, fortunately for her and fortunately for this episode was super busy and did not submit anything to us for our competition. So I felt very in the clear to talk to her and um, get in the weeds with her process and all that and um, not make it weird. Sharif first came to my attention because when I started vet rep, I was, you know, doing my, my subject matter reconnaissance and kind of looking around, you know, Google searching everything to find out if there were any veterans organizations doing playwriting or what was the veteran playwriting scene like. And one of the first organizations that popped on that obviously was arts in the armed forces, which has gotten, you know, a lot of buzz, uh, and justifiably. So it was started by Adam driver and he, uh, because of, you know, his connections and WASTA has brought a lot of attention, um, to that project. And they generally go around to military bases and to military audiences and present staged readings. But one of their lines of effort is also to have the bridge awards, where they uh, hold competitions in, I believe, both screenwriting and playwriting, or maybe they alternate back and forth. I kind of can't remember now. But anyway, they've had playwriting competitions. And so I saw that, and I saw that Cherie had won uh, the Bridge Award in 2019 for her play Tampons, Dead Dogs, and Other Disposable Things. The chief judge that year was Tony Kushner, and he wrote glowingly, about tampons, dead dogs, and other disposable things, as well as Cherie. So I was clearly, um, she was on my radar very early on. And I think I reached out to her on Instagram and, and we kind of went back and forth a little bit um, you know, over the past, I don't know, six months or so. And uh, this was the first time, though, that we actually got to lay eyes on each other over Zoom and talk. And I had no idea about her backstory, about where so much of her material is generated from. Uh, I was not expecting that. That's one of the, I should clarify, that's one of the things, uh, you know, I like to do a little bit of research on my guests. I like to read their material if I can. Uh, but Tampons, Dead Dogs, and Other Disposable Things has never been performed um, in, in a place that I could see it, and I didn't have access to the script. Um, and as you'll hear in the episode, I mean, Cherie's even been continuing to work on the script uh, even up until very recently. So, um, so I, I really didn't know her writing per se, but I was just taking it on faith that uh, she had really good bona fides and, and she'd be worth talking to. 
uh, I was not prepared for what we got into today. Um, such a incredible conversation. I'm not going to give a lot of spoilers because you're not going to have to wait long in the episode to start, you know, uh, hearing some bombs dropping when she talks uh, about, you know, some of the major traumatic events in her life and how she's coped with them. I was incredibly touched and honored uh, that she was as transparent and honest and brutally honest in some cases and unsparing of herself as well as others um, as she unpacks some of the events of her life and and um, certainly how she has mined trauma into art is, um, you know, that's a well-worn path. A lot of artists certainly do that, but it, this was a great example of how to do that or one person's path to do that. And I enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, it was, I was going to say it was exhausting, but that's not the right word. It was incredibly rewarding. It was, I felt emotionally exhausted for her. I felt like I was, uh, you know, that we were having a conversation. She was, you know, there was a lot of catharsis coming out. Um, but I think she was incredibly eloquent and, and you certainly, we've had a lot of guests on this show that have had significant emotional events in their lives and have spoken eloquently about them. I think what moved me so much about Cherie's stories was that because she is still not just actively unpacking them, but writing about them, mining things, pulling things right now artistically from them and, and crafting them into um, her work. Uh, I, I, she was just really, really eloquent. And and really perceptive and um, had had a great framework for understanding and and or, or even in some cases you know just starting to understand some of the things she had been through so that made it really uh, a fascinating conversation and um, I was just you know uh, I'm still I guess kind of reeling a little bit from it uh, because that was um, that was a lot of mining uh, that she did and there was a lot of unpacking that she did um, on air in the show. So it was a great time. I, I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. I think this episode is going to be one that really pops for a lot of you. Um, certainly did for me and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Okay. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at vet rep. And this is the savage wonder of Cherie angle. So, Sherry, you just said the most tantalizing thing somebody could say right before we're about to record, which is, you caught me on a really emotional roller coaster of a day, and uh, I don't know which way that cookie's going to crumble, but um, I'm super thrilled you're here. What's up? It's so good to see you, and finally, you know. I know. See your face. <laughs> I know. We're, we're not just digital creatures. I know. This has gone from Instagram to real life, sort of. <laughs> it, has. it has so yeah so i met you about 30 seconds ago and the very first thing you asked was how are you doing this morning and uh truly loaded question yeah <laughs> and um i i said you, you caught me in a very raw and uh, emotional morning. i'm over here um in the pacific northwest and uh so it's, it's still still relatively early i've been up for a few hours but um so this is my this is my teenage mind, 
But when you say I'm having a raw emotional day and I'm in the Pacific Northwest, I'm picturing like Twilight 4 that's happening. That's just like where my mind goes. Uh, nothing, nothing that dramatic, maybe, <laughs> hopefully. I have been running through the forest. I am a, I'm on a, a, on a, in a residency right now, um, a veteran artist residency. Nathan Hankus um, is putting me up in a little uh, studio um, up in Humboldt. And so I am around, you know, the big trees and the ocean and the fog and the cold and my thoughts. <laughs> so I know for me, like when I'm trying to immerse creatively, I am a horrible conversation because I just, I'm, I'm in a different place. I like can't formulate ideas. Are you the same way? And I'm not trying to set you up for failure by oh. saying that, but are you kind of the same way? You are, you are spot on. It's really, I think it's because things are, you're so open and ideas and thoughts, revelations are coming at you. It's, you're just kind of tapped in and your process, you're in the, you're in the act of processing everything that you're absorbing and experiencing. And when you try to articulate that, I think in that very moment, you're trying to synthesize all of this yeah. stuff happening inside of you. And yeah, so you end up kind of fumbling around. And um, I met with uh, Nathan. He's, you know, he's here as a, a sidekick and mentor and, you know, a collaborator as I'm kind of going through this process. And so we did a check-in yesterday and, and I was trying to explain the structure of the project that I'm working on. And and it was very much that. It was just kind of like, wait, no, 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 but I missed this one part. And but yeah, and then this. <laughs> so it's it's weird, yeah, because you're 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 like raw nerve. You're just trying to like emote and like trying to connect with things, and then to try to yeah synthesize that. I yeah. I get it. I get it. It's almost like yeah, you, this was uh, everybody just needs to leave you the hell alone for a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, this is this is like a you know he's been very respectful and you know like he's before he even got here you know what what's your process and oh cool oh wow you you think you know your process you think you know but then i feel like every single story that you're trying to allow um it has its own way of coming to you and coming out and you just have to accept that and be open to it and um tell me about this residency so i i'm not familiar with it enough i guess i'm still on a learning curve with the community and what is going on. So what is the residency? Where yes, is the story? Yeah. So I'm breaking this puppy in. Um, I'm the wow. first. Um, and, and it's just incredible what Nathan has done up here. But um, so Nathan, um, veteran, he wrote um, a book as, as a way of kind of processing his own, you know, experiences um, in Afghanistan. Um he wrote the book, uh, uh, Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail, and it was such a cathartic and, you know, <laughs> life-changing uh, experience to the process of writing that book um, sure. that he wanted to create that same experience for other veterans. So he started this nonprofit, um, Veteran uh, Art Residencies, VAR, and uh, he bought a property um, just outside of Arcata up in Humboldt. And he completely renovated this uh, studio um, where I am right now. And looks nice. Looks great. Yeah. It's 
um, I'll share the, the before and after. He wrote a blog post on, you know, the process of, there's so much work that went into this place. I believe it. Sure. Uh, but he found community up here too, that really supported his vision. And um, I had a chance to meet um, some of them and it's just really, really phenomenal. Just the energy and the spirit, the support. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much open to whatever project you need to, to work on. Um, and uh, with no end result in mind necessarily, or is there uh, yeah, a conclusion? Well I, think, well, I think it's it's pretty much driven by you know what the resident is is wanting to accomplish. Okay. Um, and so I'm I'm wanting to accomplish the first draft of my first book, and so um, that's in sight, and it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I bet I believe it. I believe it. Um. What is, is there any degree of, does he split the difference at all between therapeutic writing and um, writing that is for an audience or commercial in any respect? In other words, can you go up there simply to write to get your head straight? Or is there the expectation that you're trying to get something in whatever medium ready for publication or public viewing in some way? It, it is definitely um, geared towards sharing your story, um, you know, with other people. Yeah. But I also think that, you know, um, I, I'm pretty sure that he would be open to, you know, other other ways of kind of processing, you know, our experiences. I mean, and I, I don't know. I don't know where I fall on that. I think that's I, I think that's very cool. First off, just as an overall concept, I think that's enviable. That's just super cool that he's put that together and that you're the test jumper for it is really cool that you can work through all the kinks and figure out, you know, what right looks like up there in that setup. I think that's super awesome. Um, and I love that he's setting that up. I do think there's something, I don't know, there's something I think important about starting to gear work towards an audience, even if it never gets there, even if somebody's just writing therapeutically initially, um, but starting to think about what, how that impacts others. I think it makes the writing better and even the therapy better. Don't you? Yes, absolutely. And I will, I, you know, and that has been my experience and that is why I, I actually um, leaned into writing and, and how I started to find myself, who I am, my identity is because I was writing for other people. At first it was just a, uh. a table of other veterans. Um, you know, I wanted to entertain them and I wanted to reach them. Um, and then they pushed me to start sharing with a wider audience. And then lo and behold, um, I found out that I actually was a storyteller beyond my, my story. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that. Talk about your, your, your origin story. I mean, so you joined the air force, but you joined before nine 11, didn't you? Yeah. So that's a journey. So let me, maybe let me even back it up and set you up a little, a little bit more. And by the way, this is the thing I'm worst at because I get too interested in something else and we'll go down a rabbit hole and lose the chronological thread of your life. But let me try to be disciplined with this. So in high school, were you an arts girl? Were you a sports girl? Were you, who were you I was at that point? Weird girl. Um, but, you know, I think the, the important thing to know about me is that, um, you know, I, I, you know, came from the East Coast um, and my mother married um a uh, a predator and um and so i uh experienced my first uh bout of uh sexual abuse and trauma at the age of eight 
And oh, Jesus. at that moment, um, you know, and this is kind of like what I have been exploring over the years is just yeah. I left my body and, you know, and some faction of me remained, but essentially, you know, like I, this was, you know, the beginning of becoming a shell and that was reinforced over years and years. Um, I eventually left that house at the age of 15. Um, you know, I started running away and, um, rebelling and, uh, and then I, um, wound up in uh, California, um, living, uh, with my bachelor father. And as I was making my trek across the country, you know, I was born with the name Sherry, but I changed my name to Sheree as a way to kind of like create a new identity for myself, something that I was going to achieve one day. Um, this idea of a person that, you know, was inside of herself. And so, um, you know, when I was, uh, in high school, you know, I, I, came to high school like halfway through 10th grade, um, in San Diego. And then, uh, you know, I was, I was a weird kid, but I was very much, um, you know, I read, um, I formulated stories constantly because it was what, it was my coping mechanism as a child. I would run away into the forest and the trees were all my friends and, you know, the, the cliche, like little girl, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, um, that never left me. Um, but uh i um i went to community college to study art history and in that first uh year of college um i uh became pregnant and i dropped out and the boy that i got pregnant with um was kind of walking his own path and and you know i followed him and we got married and i you know changed my last name and i wound up moving to the south um alabama you know two young kids with without college degrees worked at a factory (laughs) and um there was this day in a factory in uh, huntsville alabama where this on the assembly line this woman um stood up and asked everybody to stop because her tooth had just fallen out and we needed to find it (laughs) And, and it was so absurd. And I, I've laughed about that story so many times, like, wow, I found myself there, but I just recently wrote about that. And I realized like, this was, I was looking around at all of the women on that, that assembly line and that lost tooth was just like lost hope. Lost yeah. Yeah. I don't remember if we ever found that tooth. And what was it you were making? Who ended up with that tooth? What consumer ended up buying something and found a tooth? Satellite receivers. So, um, okay. Maybe their reception was really good then. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> you tune into Oprah or Deepak Chopra a little bit more clearly with that tooth. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, so, um, yeah, around that time, um, I became very, very desperate and, uh, um, I came up with this idea of joining the military and then I specifically sought out, um, the air force, specifically air traffic control. Um, I wanted something challenging, but also the recruiter said, nobody in the air force is ever going to have to carry a gun, a weapon. <laughs> um, it really hits the fan. And this is before nine 11. <laughs> um, you know, and I had a, a young child and so I just, I didn't, you know, it seemed like the Air Force was the most family-friendly option, you know, for my young mind. Sure. 
Well, and that's true. I mean, that's held up. It's just what family friendly options mean is that that's, you know, decreased in terms of its value. I, I wanted to back up when you did I get that right? When you went to high school in 10th grade, you, you that sounded like that was your first time going to high school. Like, oh, no, 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 no. Okay. I, All right. I was still attending school on the East Coast. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Started running. I, it was, I changed households and I went from an abusive household to a place where I could actually sleep at night. Um, it was the first time um, it was quiet and safe and, um, and that was disruptive as well. <laughs> I struggled sure. Sure. But, um, you know, my, my father taught me so much. Um, he's, uh, you know, um, he spent a lot of time outdoors, uh, hang gliding, uh, sailplaning, like, you know, he's an adventure junkie. And so he taught me, um, a lot about, you know, kind of risk taking and kind of sensing your own self through risk. <laughs> and, and I, that's, you know, and that's what appealed, like, that's why air traffic control appealed to me so much. You know, I'd spent some time, you know, flying with him and also just the, the rush of, um, you know, making decisions, you know, trusting yourself, um, being on some sort of edge. And that to me seemed like the place that I needed to be so that I could feel myself out. And was, sorry, was there some sort of, was there some sense of, this is a very left brain activity for lack of a better description. And that kind of, uh, you know, you, there's that sense that you're feeling, you're building tangible skills because, Hey, with this much knowledge and being able to action things quickly and make decisions quickly, this is a, a sharp gear shift from kind of floating in the ether a little bit. Yes. Yes. And yeah. I, you know, I really do think that sometimes we make choices um, that are good for us and we don't even really, we're not really aware of it. Like, um, you know, in the ways that we seek, um, our own therapy, uh, we do things, you know, self-care or just pushing or challenging ourselves in certain ways that, you know, intuitively, I think our mind and body know we really need that. And they're yeah. just consciously aware of that. Um, so I think, I think that I was really internally like seeking growth externally i was thinking i need to find a way to get out of this factory get out of this house <laughs> had you was there a difference well let me back up did you start writing when you were still in the abusive home was that a coping mechanism that you had early on a lot of those stories were in my head um, because i needed to get i would get out of the house and so um my older brother and i who actually ran away from home before i did he was kind of the really he was the person that kind of showed me, Hey, look, this is what's possible. You can actually get out of here. Wow. Um, uh, but we spent a lot of time in the woods in Pennsylvania. And uh, so I, I, I had a very vivid imagination and, you know, I'm actually pulling those stories into the book that I'm writing now. Um, but yeah, so a lot of those were in my head and I've never forgotten them because they were so routine and did you ever write them down or these old journals or was it literally all just in your head? In my wow. head. Wow. Like there were, I think there were times when I would write a little bit here and there, um, you know, but for the most part, it's just in my head. Imagining when, when did you start writing in any way, shape or form, whether it's for yourself, 
whether it was something more than curricular. When did that happen? Um, when I was uh, when I was running away from home in Pennsylvania, um, the nights that I couldn't get out, um, I was writing a lot of uh, you know angsty, dark, you know, preteen, teenager uh, poetry. Um, I had a lot of uh, a lot of journals filled with poetry, and then when I um, moved out to California, that that kind of took off. Um, you know, <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe was like this my muse, and you know, I would take that energy and um, I would you know find all sorts of ways to kind of you know explore what was going on. Did you keep those journals? Do you still have them? So here's the sad story. Um, I did. I did keep those journals. I kept them. They, they were very precious to me. Um, and uh, when I left the Air Force in 2005, um, I was not in good shape. And you know how they, uh, <laughs> the story that I tell is, this is pretty much what happened. You know, the nice people came to pack up all of my household goods and they gave me that little pink, um, you know, receipt, like here's yeah. all your and, and then I came back uh, to California. Um, I had uh, three job offers. Um, it was during the time when the FAA was hiring like crazy and I was set and I tanked. I completely self-sabotaged. I didn't return phone calls and ironically, I ran away up here to Humboldt. I followed a boy up here and I abandoned my child and I abandoned my household goods. And my dad um, kept, uh, every time I checked in, he's like, you know, you're, you're getting these letters in the mail. You, you need to send your stuff someplace. Where are you going to send it? And I had no home because I was just floating from person to person. Um, oh. and, um, and eventually those letters stopped coming. And so all of those books, all of the the photos of my young child, um, art, you know, just things that didn't matter, but things that did matter, um, were gone. And I never had a chance to unpack any of those things. Where was your child? When you say you abandoned your child, where, where was he? So when I, um, left the air force, you know, while I was in stationed in Japan, um, you know, uh, that relationship was, was a really unhealthy one, a very, very unhealthy one. And, um, uh, he ended up, um, leaving by order, <laughs> uh, to go back to uh, the States. So he was living in Florida and, um, and because I didn't feel like I was, I had, you know, a, a home to go to, um, I, I needed my, my kid to be in a safe place. So I sent uh, Tristan to go live with their dad and um, what was supposed to be temporary ended up being permanent. And um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So talk about your service and talk about how you moved from that point A to point B when you got out. What, what was the military like for you? Did you start to find what you've been looking for? Was there a sense of liberation? Was there a sense of constriction? What, what was the experience like for you? Yeah. Um, I, you know, as soon as I uh, got to basic training, I, um, it's so wonderful. You know, I, I describe this feeling of, you know, when you're in the ocean and, um, 
you don't have anything inside of you to propel you forward or upward. As soon as somebody tells you to start paddling, you start swimming and you get the sensation of, oh, look what I can do. I can do this. And so you feel like you've got purpose and, you know, drive, you've got a mission. Um, so I, for the very first time in my life, especially when I got to tech school and started, um, you know, the, the meat and potatoes training ATC, um, I felt very competitive <laughs> Um, but also very capable and proud of myself. Um, it was the very first time that I realized that I, um, I have a mind that is uh, useful and capable and um, I can be a part of a team and I'm needed. And, um, and it was amazing. Um, I really started to find that thing inside of me, that, that sense of pride and um, purpose and, um, and that did get um, uprooted um, a bit uh, in tech school uh, when one of the instructors, you know, um, crossed lines and, um, you know, um, assaulted me. And, um, and I felt so responsible because I, um, I had gone along with it. And it's taken me so long to really put the pieces together to realize what had actually happened. Um, and so, uh, my, you know, that happened during tech school. And so it was early on. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, I, it didn't dislodge me so much that I couldn't carry forward, but it festered and, um, and throughout my six years in the service, things happened that kind of reinforced this, this idea in my head that, um, that I was fooling everyone, that I was just this magnet of disaster. And, um, and I did not perform in the way that I wanted to, that I had envisioned myself performing. And I didn't see myself going career. Um, I needed to get out and I never really understood that. Um, but there were so many moments in my service that, that made me feel good <laughs> and um, really, you know, just the people that I was around and, you know, like there were so many relationships that mattered because they taught me a thing or two about strength and resilience. You know, there were lessons to be learned that were very, very positive. And I carry those with me too. Um, but what happened towards the end, you know, is this, um, it seemed like every time, you know, the, the relationship that I was in, you know, as I was, if I succeeded, that was a problem in the relationship mm. and I would be held in a certain way. And what I didn't realize is that I was, you know, that I'm reflecting on now as, as, you know, <laughs> right. aged woman is, is seeing the patterns in my life, the things that I've been taught as a child and how they kind of play out over time. And, and, you know, continually choosing relationships that kind of keep me in this cycle of, you know, like, are they, is she going to succeed at something? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, Interesting. Yeah. And, and kind of, um, 
absorbing the messaging of people around me that are working on their own things in their own way. Um, it's kind of picking up their influence. Yeah. And, okay. and kind of pulling me down with them. Um, and so, and this is me saying these things, trying to accept responsibility for the choice of being in unhealthy relationships, pretty much. Sure. Sure. Uh, and so, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 sorry. No, listen, I, I don't want to interrupt. This is why I hate Zoom. I mean, Zoom is great. It's the best platform I have. I wouldn't be able to do this otherwise, but yeah, it, it, I'm, I keep thinking, God, if we're just in a coffee shop, this would be a lot more seamless. Um, so uh, I, one of the things you said struck me is, I mean, a lot of things you said struck me is interesting, but one, the one thing I want to pick up on, you said you started to, you started to feel competitive when you got to tech school. Um, was that the first time you'd felt competitive? Was that the first time that there was like a new personality trait yes. that was emerging for you? Absolutely. And it, you know, I say competitive, but it was really um, the challenge of reaching the goal, you know, where we're in these um, simulators, you know, talking to planes and I'm looking at my peers and wondering, okay, like how are they failing and how can I succeed and how can I achieve the goal that we're all trying to reach? And, um, and every time that I would reach that, you know, I felt good. I felt respectable. <laughs> yeah. Not before. I'm just going to say this, but I mean, you know, everybody has that imposter syndrome in the military when they get there, right? Like everybody's, I mean, it doesn't, I don't think there's anyone um, no matter how much they take to the military that doesn't get there and go, um, well, I'm whatever my baggage is, I've got it with me. And there's some degree of repressing it because I've got this, you know, task oriented life now in front of me. And then at some point you kind of look in the rearview mirror and go, oh shit, I guess, I guess I'm sort of that thing now. And, and now I kind of, I, I see behind the curtain and I realize, oh, it, we're all kind of imposters, but you know, you just kind of you know, I guess the percentage of your life that gets taken over with, if not that identity, those tasks just kind of, you go, oh, okay, well, this is what it means. It just means that, you know, you're not the imposter. It's just that percentage of your life that's dedicated to that baggage or, or those insecurities just starts to diminish, it, not because they diminish, but just because the percentage of them diminishes with all the task saturation, right? <laughs> yes. It's so weird. It's so weird that everybody feels that, but but certainly coming from your background, I mean, that's a, I mean, I can only imagine um, that's a huge burden to carry with you. And, um, you know, I, I remember talking to Lonnie Hankins a few weeks ago, and she talked about how she was sexually assaulted when she got out of um, AIT uh, for the army and showed up at her first duty station. And it, it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about that, um, you know, as a guy, you're, you know, I can't relate um, necessarily to that, but I'm thinking of young women I knew when they were just after basic training or just after their, whatever their tech school AIT was. And that degree of vulnerability that everybody, men and women have in the military, but for women, it does present some significant problems. Um, And I can, and I, and it's funny that the other thing you said, it's kind of a, bounces off you, but it stirred up a lot of thoughts in me when you were talking. There's something about glowing in the military, and that is not the military phrasing for, for what I'm talking about, but 
But there's something about um, finding your individuality, finding your strength, finding your purpose, and becoming good at it. Yeah. And it strikes, and it, it makes you, and this is true, I think, in any profession, anytime you become good at something, you become inherently attractive. Doesn't mean you're you know, automatically Brad Pitt and Cindy Crawford, but you do, there is an inherent attraction to people that are excelling. And it's it the way you phrase it, and I, I don't know if this is exactly how it played out for you, but it sounded like when you started to excel, that initial burst of, of attractiveness suddenly made you pray for somebody. And for a guy, that initial attractiveness wouldn't have exhibited itself that way, I don't think. I think it would have been, maybe it would it have been desired, you know, that, hey, maybe girls will find me more attractive now. I've got this new confidence or something like that. But it, But I don't see as many guys being preyed upon that way, the way it sounds like you were. And that, um, and I can only imagine how difficult and tricky that is because you're excelling finally and you're finding a niche and now that's cut out from under you or would try to be cut out from under you. Right. Yeah. I think absolutely everything, what you're saying is, is it rings very true in my experience and a lot of the experiences, um, that I've had the opportunity to, to listen to, you know, of other female veterans, um, I, um, you know, you're just talking about Alana. Um, I just remembered, uh, when I did get to my first duty station, I was, um, yeah, I was at Little Rock, Arkansas, which is the third busiest single runway in the world. And it was, it was really busy. I remember the first day I walked up to the tower, you know, uh, guy talking, uh, you know, in local, uh, position where you talk to the planes in the air, his hands were shaking. (laughs) Um, But I I was so hungry for that. And so I, everything that I did, I, you know, I was dreaming planes. I poured myself into mastering that, that pattern, that tower. And, um, and it was right towards the end, uh, right before I was about to get my certification that I got a call, um, from the sergeant that had assaulted me. Um, I was at the tower. He, he actually called me at work, um, and I went down to the break room to take the call and he told me that he was under investigation and he was begging me, um, not to, to rat him out. And was he under investigation for what happened to you or something else? Other people. Holy crap. Um, wow. And, uh, and, and there was a part of me that felt like, oh, I don't have to worry about this anymore he's being taken care of. And then also, you know, I was married at the time and I was so worried about what I had done wrong that I was like, you don't have to worry about me. I'm not going to say a word. And, um, but you know, that I remember that day and I, I, I fucked up (laughs) at work that day. Um, and I, I almost cost my trainer, uh, his license. And, um, you know, I just, it's really interesting that you say, you know, like these moments where we start to find our footing, where we start to feel that inner propulsion or like, okay, I can, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And, you know, it's just this strange magnetism somehow, um, that, you know, and I think that's just something that needs to be talked about. Um, if you're aware of it (laughs) and you're looking for it. then um, I think there's a way to, you know, call it out when you see it. Um, I meant, 
I meant to ask how it, how had your husband taken to you being in the air force? Was that an easy transition for him? No, no. Um, you know, that's, and that's why we ended up, uh, falling apart. Um, I, he really, really struggled with being the, the stay at home dad. I actually had to convince him to let me join, um, you know, he went through the whole like cliche. I'm the, I'm the guy I should, you know, right. so I, I made this bet with him. Whoever scores higher on the ASVAB <laughs> would go. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I went. <laughs> wow. That was ballsy. Okay. Yeah. But you must, you must have liked your odds. <laughs> You know, I guess maybe that whole competitiveness, maybe it was in me before the <laughs> <laughs> So when so when you got in, did, was it a strain right away? Was it one of those? I mean, obviously, you know, there's a lot of shenanigans that happened pretty early on in your career, but I mean, was it was it something that uh you could tell there was trouble on the horizon? Absolutely. Pretty much. Absolutely. Yeah, right away. And um and I did my best to try and keep my home life separate from my work life and um, when I got to Japan like that, that didn't, uh, that didn't pan out, um, you know, but I was also, um, you know, I had also before Japan, um, had a relationship with a girl, um, in Little Rock and was under investigation for that. Holy and, crap. Wow. Yeah. Investigation. What, what was, what was you being, was, what were you being investigated for? Uh, don't ask, don't tell. Um, oh, I, okay. Curses the nineties. You know, and I was, I was married. And so, um, so adultery you know, and all that. Somebody, yeah. Yeah. So somebody, um, had seen, um, her and I, um, kissing and, uh, and reported us. And, um, and then that was just huge. So shortly after that, I got orders to Japan and, um, and so they, they didn't uh, kick me out. Um, but it was, it was not a good time, uh, both in my relationship and, you know, my relationship with the air force and, um, you know, and I know why and where I was, um, when that happened, I was in a very, um, bad relationship and, uh, found safety, um, in this beautiful human being and, um, you know, it wasn't okay. <laughs> Was, and I'm, I'm completely speculating, so um not trying to put words in your mouth at all. Was the Air Force the first sort of stable environment that, that kind of built a framework that therefore you could start to sort out so much trauma? And so, you know, it was kind of like it, that was your coping mechanism was I'm in the Air Force. That's going to set very defined left and right limits. And I'm going to bounce around between those left and right limits, trying to figure all this shit out and unspool this knot of thread that has happened over the course of my life so far. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I do. I do think that, um, you know, meeting so many people from so many different backgrounds, um, you know, from all over the country, um, having that kind of exposure in those conversations, you know, you, you go out and you get drunk with a couple of airmen and you share your deepest, darkest secrets and your, you know, your fears and you really open up and, um, and, you know, it was, it was, you know, a time for me to start exploring, you know, my identity, um, my, my sexual identity, my, um, 
as, as a woman, as, you know, as a wife, as a mother, um, you know, it was definitely a thousand percent. That was the beginning of that journey. Um, were you writing at all during this time? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, really? Yeah. I, I think I really started writing, um, in Japan, on uh, the midshift up in the tower and I'd be up there by myself with nothing to do except the same DVD of, uh, galaxy quest <laughs> to watch and nothing else. So yeah. Um, I, I started writing a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, the first time I started writing fiction. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, what are you writing when you're writing this stuff? Is it, yep. it's all fiction. It's not, you're not trying to do personal poetry, memoir, you know, thoughts, your personal thoughts, anything like that? No, not at that time. At that, at that time, it was, it had become pretty tumultuous at home, um, downright abusive. And, um, you know, uh, so I, uh, I was all into escapism and, um, yeah. What, what, <laughs> what form did that take? What, when you wrote fiction, what did you find yourself? What subjects were you writing about? What themes, of, like anything? A lot of relationship um, stories. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, just strange, uh, twisty, you know, interpersonal, you know, stories. Um, stories about, you know, power as well. Um, and like, you know, exercising power, um, some dark twisted stories. (laughs) Um, how much that do you still have? Do you still remember general outlines of any of that or no? Uh, those were, you know, those were hastily written. Those I don't remember so much. Um, you know, there's, there's a a few that I remember, but those were all packed up and, you know, I'm sure somebody, maybe somewhere either them or so reading right. some really like, you know, Ooh, this is very experimental. <laughs> you got some secret fan somewhere just waiting, you know, to I mean, approach you. Know, you. Yeah. Some of them, you know, will be uh, in playgirl somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> so would it, would it be playgirl for the literary content or for the eroticism? <laughs> That's a really good question, and I don't know that I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you ended up, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you ended up deploying, didn't you? No. Okay. No, I never did. There was um, a moment when that was a possibility after, after 9 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, I was a single mom, and there were so many um, uh, guys in the tower that are like, oh, no, 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 before you talk to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I could have used the pro pay, but they right. were more hungry than I. And, um, and, you know, the prospect of sending my, um, my kiddo, um, you know, elsewhere while I was deployed was not optimal. Yeah, of course. So you make the decision to get out and you get out. And now, so now I want to dive, if you don't mind a little bit into what you talked about before when that separation and obviously everybody's separation is a little traumatic yours you know certainly qualifies uh as, as that um like many of ours what did you find yourself uh, you know when you're not returning calls and when you're just kind of you know breaking free now with the benefit of hindsight what was going on for you i had um saved up money um and you know 
there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear and, um, uncertainty. And I, um, hindsight, what I was really facing was just this abyss within myself. Um, just this big black hole, um, that was very, very empty. Um, I had kept going and filling every moment, um, you know, that last year in the air force, there was a lot of my supervisor spent a lot of time trying to convince me to stay. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to hear any of that because, um, you know, I was, I wanted to make sure I got out so that I could continue my mission of getting into the FA and having, you know, a career and, and having my kid, um, live in, a San Diego near my dad and my brother. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's just what I was going to do. Um, and, uh, when I sent Tristan to go live with their dad, um, that was a mistake and that I invited that person that hadn't done a whole lot of healing for themselves to, to have power over me again. And, and this person used, um, my failings as a mother, uh, psychologically and otherwise, um, to kind of put me in a place where I, um, I didn't feel like I could be a mom. And, you know, that, that happened when I was up here in Humboldt. Um, I, uh, the irony is I, I, uh, before I got up here, I grabbed, um, a handful of notebooks, you know, as as writers, we, we have like a thousand different notebooks that are only halfway written through (laughs) or grab a fresh one. It's like, um, and so I grabbed uh, some some old uh, notebooks, and one of them is from the early days of my separation. And you know, I, I'm looking at all of these notes in it, you know, for unemployment, and 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 then I remembered, oh, I couldn't get unemployment because the day after, you know, as soon as I got to San Diego, I went and I got myself some stupid little cheesy admin job that I immediately quit, which disqualified me for um, unemployment. Uh, yeah. And then, um, and then I'm like, you know, and then as I was burning through my savings, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'll go to school. I'll, you know, take classes, right. use my GI bill to stay afloat. So I was using that to kind of be my income. And, um, but, you know, I followed a boy, um, philosophy major, <laughs> um, up here to, to humble and, um, and I love this place so much. And there are notes in this, in this notebook of how I was going to convince my ex to move out here with my kid. Because at that time he had said, well, you know, Tristan's here with me and I'm more stable than you. And I think that, you know, this needs to, sure. how about when he goes to junior high, you know, we'll, we'll do right. the transition then. And then it just kept getting pushed out from there. But, um, so I had all these, you know, notes, like how I'm going to uh, convince, you know, him to come out here. Um, but, uh, there was a phone call that took place and, you know, I'd been, <laughs> I had started this journey into kind of figuring out who I was, <laughs> yeah. figuring out how to come back into myself. Sure. And, 
And I was having a conversation with my ex over the phone about all of that. And he didn't understand what the hell I was talking about. And I remember him like, kind of like gasping, like, Oh my God, Shree, you're, I think you're really lost. Mm. And he said it just like that. And the way he said it, I remember like feeling like he's right. I am. And, um, and I just, um, to recognize one's own lack of self is just really terrifying. And all of that purpose and sense of self and everything just wasn't there. I had nothing to hold on to. And, um, and so I was up here. Um, I actually just went there a few days ago. I found it again, but there's this, uh, point, um, outside of Trinidad called Elk's Head. And it is one of those places is incredibly beautiful, but it is a very raw natural place where the forest runs up against cliffs and the ocean just mm. slides right into it. Mm. And it is a terrifying place to be. Um, it's also really beautiful, but, sure. um, but I, um, I, uh, you know, so when I was 28, you know, I, uh, sat on the edge of Elk's head and, um, with my feet dangling off. And I really thought about being just you know, taken by the ocean right there. Sure. And, uh, you know, when I went back there the other day, I could not get anywhere near that edge. Huh. Cause it's just physically like your body, every ounce of my body is like, don't go anywhere. It's an isolated spot there. There aren't many people around and, you know, usually there aren't any, there isn't anyone um, there, but, um, uh, yeah, it's just reflecting now, reflecting back on that moment. I, I, it's terrifying to think that that's where I was, that I was so comfortable sitting and dangling my feet off the edge of that cliff there like that. I mean, it's so sheer. It's such a sharp edge and, um, and the ocean is so powerful. So the other day when I was there, um, I got my cell phone out to kind of record the, um, the way the waves, cause you can't yeah. the ocean up here, the, the, the land and the rocks under the water, you can't see the pattern of the waves really. At least I can, I'm sure other people can. And so it's just very chaotic. And, uh, and so I was just had my phone and I was like holding it up so I can get an angle on the, on the waves, yeah. the cliffs and the rocks down below. And, um, this wave came in and I mean, this cliff is so high. You could, you could easily stick a, a house in there, you know, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. this wave came and it, hit the side of the cliff. You hear that, like that impact boom and the spray comes up and it hits me and it scared the shit out of me. It's so powerful. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that was, that was like a point for me. And it wasn't the first time. I mean, it wasn't, it was the first time when I was like, when I was 28 that I had suicidal ideations, like they were very clear, um, but it wasn't the last time. And, um, so that, that unfolded time and time again, as I kept repeating these cycles, you know, starting to kind of like 
regain myself and then finding somebody or some distraction that would kind of take me off my own path and following somebody else down their own path and, um, get lost again. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I, it was when I was pregnant, um, with my second child, um, that I was at another cliff. Um, and you know, in, in San Diego at a sunset cliffs where I was, you know, thinking the same things. And, um, and it was that point when I had my child in my belly, like things, you know, seemed more clear. And that was when I was finally able to start taking that cycle and starting to turn it into more of a spiral. (laughs) Um, like, you know, that was kind of pulling me back into myself slowly over time. Um, and so, uh, yeah. During this, I mean, first I, I, I just feel like I should say, I mean, thank you for sharing that. I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to, if not in its entirety, um, in bits and pieces and certainly the emotional, um, component of it, I think is something that's eminently relatable to a lot of folks, certainly in the veteran community, but also outside the veteran community. Um, during that time, now with the benefit of hindsight, do you think your coping mechanism was really relationships or was it starting to evolve into something self-generated like your writing, like keeping notes, like putting pen to paper? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, um, you know, at the time I was, uh, working at the DOD and, uh, HR, I was working HR, but, um, Mm. I, uh, I realized, you know, like I I needed to do something. So I actually quit my job and I used what was left of my GI bill. And I went to a private, you know, one of those diploma mill schools, um, web design and graphic design. Um, because I needed to do something creative, but also practical. <laughs> so, um, but so I, I quit my job and, and I call that my gimme year. Um, it was actually because I forgot how old I was. And so I felt like I had a whole year given to me. So I'm like, I'm going to use this to change things. <laughs> and so I, um, so I quit my job and I went back to school full time. Um, and, uh, I, um, you know, while I was there, I was, you know, granted it was graphic design and web design, but it exposed me to people that were creative. And uh, the dean of the college, um, Marketa Gova, um, she asked me to apply for a graphic design internship at San Diego Repertory Theater. And um, uh, Molly, um, the 22-year-old brilliant designer who actually works for Hello Sunshine and, and Will Smith now, but she um, she interviewed me and I'm this, you know, I'm in my 30s and, and we connected and she hired me and it was the first time that somebody handed me a play to read and asked me to draw some concept art and, you know, and so I, I read my first play and um and then i got to watch you know first rehearsal and the evolution and um and i remember reading that first play thinking i want to write like this and because it just felt like 
the poet in me and the storyteller in me, it's like this perfect, you know, space for the voice and, and that was begging to come out. And, um, and so that gimme year was so successful that the very next year I decided, you know, and that, that internship started on my birthday. So I took it as a sign. And yeah. so, you know what, I'm every year for the rest of my life, I'm going to theme my years. And so the next year was the year of my voice. And that's when I wrote my first story to be performed in front of an audience. Um, I broke my silence, um, about the abuse that took place when I was eight. And, um, and then that slowly unfolded opportunity. And the, the, the really interesting, crazy part is when I wrote that first story, there was a casting director, Jacole Kitchen, that worked with the rep. And I was terrified of her, but I made myself go and ask her to give me performance notes on this piece. And she stayed after work and gave me performance notes. And, um, and you know, and so it was really beautiful. And she gave me like really, really powerful notes that are actually in um, that play, Tampons and Dead Dogs. Um, and uh, I actually incorporated them in the stage direction. Really? Yeah. So, so wait, was this piece, was it you performing it or was it for other characters? Um, so this piece was just a monologue piece and it was okay. just a, a, a real life story. I, um, I wrote it for an organization called uh, So Say We All, where you, you know, their whole MO is writers get drunk and tell their true stories, like a little 10 minute, you know, story. Uh-huh. So I wrote it and, um, and submitted it. It got selected. And so I performed it in front of uh, an audience in a bar in San Diego. And how did that feel? How did that feel performing it? Because that was your first time ever performing, right? Yes. yes. Um, that is that in of itself. I'm going to take too much of your time because there's stories. You can't, you can't possibly, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> but um, we, uh, um, the, there is, uh, the story is about confronting my stepfather um, after he uh, experienced a, brain tumor surgery in the hospital. I hadn't seen him since I was a kid, but I traveled to go see him because I was convinced that he was going to die. From this and this place. is, this is real. Sorry, just a yeah. caveat. So this is actually what happened. So you're retelling yeah. that. Okay. All right. And, and my first year uh, in the military, I got a call saying that he was going into surgery at a brain tumor. And I decided that I was going to go because I was feeling very empowered at the time. And so, um, you know, yeah. I'm realizing as I'm saying this, you know, this conversation that we're having that, yeah, you're right. Actually, I was, there was something happening um, that the military was kind of providing for me in terms of a sense of self, um, sense of dignity, um, an agency. Yeah. <laughs> so I felt empowered to go and confront this man that had abused me from age eight to 12. Um, so in the, uh, in the hospital room, um, I, uh, there was this moment of rage that I had where I pointed at him and, you know, <laughs> like, you know, my, my blood was boiling. My, my hairs on my arm were like stinging. They were standing up so straight, but I pointed at him and I said, you, 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 and I couldn't, I couldn't say the words. Um, so I put that in the story and Jacole, the note that she gave me was after each you finish the sentence in your head. And mm. so, um, and so when I was in front of the microphone, I actually did that. And on that last U, the microphone squealed. 
and it was like this sound barrier being broken. And <laughs> I remember some random guy in the back of the car going, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. But that, that moment right there was my voice finally breaking through and finally reaching other people. And I felt so relieved and so just, I was, I was floating when I got off that stage. Like I was float. Like I, I didn't, I was processing everything that had just taken place. So I was numb. Sure. I was floating. Like, you know, people were coming up to me and telling me about their experiences. And I remember thinking like, wait, mm. what? I'm not alone. Yeah. Um, and this whole time, you know, I like, I'm in my thirties at this point. And this entire time I was so, so Christopher, I can't, expressed you. And this is something in all of my work that I will never, ever, ever, I swear I will never forget. And I cling to is that out there, there is somebody that feels no matter where they are in life, how old they are, how long they've walked. Um, there is always somebody that feels like it was just me. This just happened to me. And there's just something that's so tragic and, 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 and so it's my mission to really break people out of that bubble um, of just, ugh, just me. How, uh, this is just a comment, but I mean, how serendipitous and fortuitous that you were finding that you fell through graphic design into the performing arts as opposed to going and doing graphic design for just a publishing house, you know, that you actually had the chance then to say those words, get that performance note and actually you yourself say it to people. And I'm, I'm gonna, I'm thinking out loud here, but I'm, I think I'm on the verge of a question. Do you think, uh, do you think that what hooked you on theater was the fact, was the community, was the fact that you suddenly could interact with people and that feedback, that instant gratification? A thousand percent. Um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I remember, um, after I won the Bridge Award, um, they invited me out to New York for the very first table read. And, and I remember feeling so incredibly terrified um, and sitting, the, the invitation was to go to Juilliard and um, do a reading, you know, table read um, with just some really fabulous human beings and actors um, that I was just like, holy cow, I get to work with these people today. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember, um, you know, I, I, sat outside Juilliard for like three hours before he was supposed to be there just processing. And then when I got there, it was the first time that I was, you know, meeting Adam Driver and, you know, Joanne Tucker and, and, you know, and I, I talked to them on the phone and so it felt comfortable, but it was also different. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, we all, you know, sat in our little folding chairs and it was no different than, you know, La Jolla Playhouse or the Rep or any other like little tiny space that I had been in before. It was just the same. We're just there in these uncomfortable folding chairs. And um, and before we got into the reading, they invited me, you know, is there anything you want to tell us beforehand? Um, and I <laughs> say like, um, oh, um, in this play, you were going to find snippets of my soul. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, you're so grandiose. You're so cheesy. And then, and then I'm like, oh, oh, but don't, don't, don't be careful with my soul because I haven't been. And, and everybody laughed. And I remember thinking like, ah, oh, these are my people. <laughs> yeah. Let me 
can be ridiculous and poke fun of ourselves and just be really incredibly vulnerable and open and, um, you know, and, and it was my place of healing, you know, before I got to Juilliard at that point, um, you know, I, Jacole Kitchen, the, the same casting director that had given me my very first notes, she sent me an email years later saying, I can't believe that you're on my list of people to reach out to, but you're a veteran and La Jolla Playhouse, we are doing a playwriting workshop and we'd love you to join us. And when I first got to that table, I remember seeing all the other veterans at the table, they're all writers and I'm not a writer. <laughs> and, and, um, but they, it was like being in the military again, in the sense that we had a goal. We were not going to let each other fail in that goal. We're going to hold each other accountable. And, um, and they held me accountable and they are my brothers and my sisters. And, um, and, you know, we served together at that table and I love that table and that space at La Jolla Playhouse. Like that is home mm. because that is where I really found the space to put myself out there in a way that I had never before. And, um, and, uh, and they have always pushed me to share my work with other people. They're the reason why I submitted to the bridge. They're the reason why, um, you know, I'm working on some of the projects that I'm working on right now. And, um, and they continue to show up um, for me. And, and I have so much love for all of them. Um, and they're the reason why I was actually able to finally finish my PTSD treatment through the VA. Um, yeah, which is always ongoing, but you know, that first initial 16 week brutal, you know, <laughs> course, um, I was going to the VA doing my treatment and then going to La Jolla Playhouse to work on writing plays. And that's, that's when I wrote that, that play during that time. That seems like an actually really good setup. That's almost a perfect setup, I think, right? Cause you're getting all this therapy and then, Hey, rubber meets road and, and pen to paper and, and you're capturing so much, right? Yeah. And, and Christopher, I will tell you right now that that is my intent and that is where I'm heading um, as, as, a, as an artist, as a human being, is that in much the same way that Nathan, you know, has created this opportunity um, because it gave him so much, I am going to be doing the same. So I'm trying to make moves in the direction of, of becoming, you know, somebody that can help walk people through uh, something similar to what I was gifted. Would, what would that look like? Would that look like a, a trained psychologist kind of almost priming? I hate to say, it cause it sounds manipulative, but almost priming the pump, you know, sorting through memories and, and, uh, and emotions. And then the afternoon is like writing like that kind of thing. Is that it, literally that kind of framework? You know, I think, I think it's, you know, I, there's so many, um, I've, I've there's so many veteran organizations, you know, like our organization, they say, we are not therapy. We are not therapy. And, right. and yeah, you're not, but you know, <laughs> like, 
there's an aspect to it because this is the work that we do. It's inherent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what I see is that I don't ever want to put the onus on a nonprofit or an an arts organization to actually take up that like hardcore mantle. However, I do think that there are partnerships that can take place. And I think that they do exist um, uh, where there are, you know, um, places that are, you know, trained psychologists and, you know, that are, are doing the deep work, you know, through cognitive therapy or whatever else it is that, you know, somebody's kind of walking through married with, you know, a way and outlet to process everything that you just talked about you know, in your session. Um, yeah. and, and so it's just being given that opportunity and being in a place where people understand this is what we're going through in our personal lives right now. And this is what can like come out of that. This is can be like a byproduct of this ugly shit that we're processing right now. A hundred percent. And in some ways, I, I, I guess you always have to be careful when you say stuff like this, but in some ways it's um, those burdens are in so many cases, the secret sauce to great art, right? That it, it's just, you, you, the more stuff you have to mine, and that doesn't mean you welcome it or, 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 you know, become a drama queen that's just looking for, you know, problems to exploit, but that, that there is a sense of um, acknowledging that and being grateful that you now have an opportunity to exhume it, expunge the record, and, and kind of deal with it in a commercial way that hopefully helps others, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think it's fascinating. I think it's really fascinating work. How important um, was the actual technical side of writing to you? Were you, um, was it something that you sought out right away when you realized this could be a mechanism or was it something that you've just has had to catch up with you as you've gone on your merry way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me and structure, we got a we got a sorted relationship. <laughs> um, it's like the the mother that always tells me what I need, and I just don't want to hear her. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, you know the the play that won the bridge. That was just that was just stream of consciousness. That was like just it just came out. Um, you know, yeah there was, you know, work and drafts and everything, but that was just very much, it just kind of came together. Um, and as I've, you know, then I was in the writer's guild and, you know, as worked on screenplays and now, um, you know, the last two years have been my come to Jesus moment <laughs> with, with structure and, you know, the more technical aspect of writing. Um, and I still, I still resist it. But, um, you know, uh, the Writers Guild Foundation, a year of that fellowship and having mentors that um, really, you know, weren't taking no for an answer and then working as a profession, you know, finally, you know, getting uh, gigs, writing on other people's screenplays, dialogue, um, working within their structure, you know, um, I, I had to. I didn't have a choice, you know, and now I'm, um, working up, I've, 
I've um, been so fortunate to work with Moth and Flame on these um, virtual reality modules. And, you know, the structure of those is very, very tight. Um, and, you know, like it's just dialogue, everything, you know, your arcs have to fit in such a tiny, tiny little bubble. And so precision is really key. And, but, you know, it's also, you have to build that emotional connection and that arc mm. and that story. And so, yeah. So T tell me about that. I'm not, I'm not fully tracking that. So what is it? What is that? What is moth and flame and what is the word of the virtuality? So sorry. Um, no, no, it's all right. Yeah. yeah so, um, so I feel I, very tempted to nod and smile and go along with it, but I was like, no, I probably should figure out what the hell that is. So, so, um, um, I've been working with uh, Moth and Flame about a year and a half now, maybe almost two years, but they um, they are a virtual virtual reality uh, production company, um, and they've worked with some really um, really amazing names. Um, you know, they created uh, fan experiences for The Walking Dead, um, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, um, and uh, they kind of went into this arena of creating training experiences um, for the military. Oh, got you. With the Air Force. So they've been doing a lot of different types of training. Gotcha. For a lot of different organizations, but they pulled me in um, for the Air Force. And the very first um, training module that they uh, had me work on was a suicide prevention course for first sergeants. And, um, and so you, so airmen put on a headset and you go through a training with a coach and then you are thrust into a scenario where you talk to a character, an airman who's on the edge and you have choices of what to say to them. And depending on how you respond, uh, that, you know, affects the outcome. And you're doing all the dialogue. You're writing all the dialogue. Yeah. And so that, that first one, um, you know, I met with the coach and subject matter experts and I learned a lot about, you know, it's like talking about it's what I love about being a writer is you get to learn so much about the world and, and yourself. Um, it's just, and you just get it, you know, part of the gig. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, um, I, uh, yeah. So that first one, I just worked on the dialogue and the storyline and, you know, when we had learning objectives, um, that we had to meet, um, you know, the like, barriers to intervention and, you know, just other, other things, but, but really like, you know, just getting people to the point where they feel like they actually are in front of somebody who is sure. really struggling and, and to have like a lot of the learning comes from having an emotional connection with that character and forgetting that you're in a scenario in, in a virtual reality, you know, situation, yeah. Yeah. Actually talking to a human being. And so, um, you know, I'm able to like pull all of this stuff from inside of me and, and put it someplace that actually has a purpose. And, um, and now, um, uh, right now I'm working on my third, um, SAPR project, uh, sexual assault prevention and response project for the air force. And with each of these, you know, now I'm, I'm writing, um, both, you know, the, the coaching aspect. So I'm meeting with, uh, you know, these amazing people, um, um, one of them, uh, Kristen Christie, uh, she, um, you know, she's, uh, a woman, she was not in Colorado. Uh, her, um, her husband, um, uh, took his life. Um, and so she has spent the rest of, you know, 
she's dedicated the rest of her life is just working on resiliency and, you know, uh, suicide prevention. Um, and, uh, you know, so just being around people that have, have walked this road and they're, they're much further along their own paths. Yeah. And I am on my own little unique path and I'm learning from, from their, from their, you know, lives. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's, it's been uh, really meaningful. It's, it's been my favorite project um, really? for a long time now. And, uh, so what is yeah. that doing for you creatively? Are you, do you find yourself, uh, do you find themes from it? Do you find that you have your ear for dialogue is changing? Do you find just your structures getting better because you're used to working in a more confined space? What, what's it doing for you creatively? Uh, structure, absolutely. Um, but also, you know, especially when I was meeting, you know, I think I, I brought up Christian Christie because I think that was the most impactful um, subject matter expert, you know, relationship mm. that I you know, that I had because we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the work itself, but then, you know, other things as well. And, um, and throughout all of these projects, I feel like I started keeping like this, this little list of unresolved hurts and not just the things that have been done to me, but the things that I've done to other people as a result of, you know, sexual trauma, um, bad choices, just all of it. And, um, and so I can, I can blame moth and flame for <laughs> why I'm writing the book that I'm writing right now. It's wow. yeah. I am pulling it all together, but structurally, absolutely. Like, um, you know, I think the writer's guild kind of forced me to kind of start cutting my teeth and, and, making friends with structure, moth and flame demanded it. And now, um, you know, my conversation last night <laughs> with my, you know, with Nathan was just, I've had this come to Jesus moment with structure because wow. I am so much of this book because it's skipping through timeline and fable and memoir um, is it requires a sound structure for me able to, to re write like the crazy thing that I'm attempting to write. And so I see these boxes and, you know, the, the arc in like a more, you know, like a, a straight line like this, you know, like a triangle, yeah. versus, you, yeah. know, like this legally, you know, like however five plot points. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Or the free form. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so now I see um, how I am going to be able to, put these really big feelings, these surreal moments, these really, really difficult to, you know, I don't know, these crazy energetic um, uh, moments in a story. And I'm going to be able to put it in a little container and it'll be much more powerful that way, or at least I'll be able to contain it and, and wield it. And, you know, I'll be in control of it instead of it being in control of me. Well, what's interesting is it, it sounds like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a lot of this has been experiential learning for you, that you've had jobs that have demanded different things, which seems like a real, and that's freaking awesome. That's the dream. Like you haven't had to sit there necessarily and go, all right, well, I got to take courses in this and I've got to go, you know, get an MFA to do that. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I am, you know, between you and me. 
I did apply for my first MFA because I do, I do want to teach at some point. Um, okay. I, uh, you know, um, I had a ATAP, had a writer's boot camp with Paula Vogel and, and I'm like, I want to teach like she teaches, but maybe oh, a little cool. bit. Like <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I do want to go that route. Um, but, and I have, you know, the writer's guild foundation, they, you know, they definitely gave us a lot of education. And then even at um, La Jolla Playhouse, you know, it was guided, you know, that first year, right. Anna Munch, uh, Lily Padilla, um, Jenny Lane, those were the MFA uh, grads at UCSD. And um, they, they taught us, you know, some things, but. Um, what was that like? Was it a week, week in, week out basis, or was it um, just, Hey, occasionally, or we're here for mentorship. If you reach out to us, what was the framework like for that? We had a, yeah, it was actually really, really good. So we had, um, you know, like packets, you know, or like worksheets where they would explain like the basics of story structure, or, you know, playwriting. And, and then from there, it was really a conversation about what you're interested in and they mm. are responsible for waking me up, you know, my, my actual, my creative voice. Um, Anna Munch was the one that said, um, I think you'd like Sarah Kane. <laughs> and as soon as I read that, I was like, Oh, psychosis. I was like, okay. Uh, you know, it was a giant permission slip for, you know, the, the strange, like, because beforehand, I think that I had been trying to mimic what I had been reading. Right, right. Seeing on stage. And, um, and then I, I realized that there, there really aren't rules. The only rule really is, can I make you understand where I want you to, where I want us to go as a, as collaborators. And, um, and so that really opened up, you know, my, my voice. Um, At that point, what had you written? Had you written tampons, dead dogs, no disposable things? Had you written your monologue? I mean, your monologue, I assume you'd written it at that point, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So it was just like a little 10 minute, you know, thing called Oprah is okay. <laughs> and, um, and then I was, you know, I was writing, um, you know, for, for school, I was writing uh, web content. Right. And, but it was all like, you know, crazy touchy feely stuff. And then, um, but yeah, um, during the workshop, I, the first day that we had a workshop, um, it was like this, you know, the initial kickoff uh, before La Jolla, like really, you know, took it up as like a more structured program was okay. a weekend retreat with Maurice Ducal and um, and um, Justin Hudnall from Sociable here in San Diego. But, you know, it was Maurice kind of like guided us through like the process of writing something. and. Uh, what I had written was really, um, it was about, um, a dream that I had had, um, that I'll tell you about another day, but, <laughs> but it was, uh, about the generational trauma that took place on my mother's side of the family, you know, um, abuse, murder, and, you know, like, and wow. seeing how my mother's, um, side, it was just like this poisoned bloodline. So I wrote this crazy experimental, like made no sense stuff about that. It was just pure emotion. Wow. I remember trying to read it out loud at the table and all of a sudden like tears, snot bubbles. <laughs> wow. wow. Um, and, uh, and that was when, you know, um, 
um, AJ Brooks, a Marine, um, he's like, you know, uh, I've, I've learned a mentor once told me that, um, if you skew the lens a little bit, it's easier to look at, you know, the past in your history. And, um, and so then I started leaning more into fiction. And so, um, yeah, before tampons, I was, uh, I was writing, um, stories that I'm actually going to be able to finish in the next year or two. Um, one called heirlooms and, you know, so just, um, and these are and these are plays, or these are straight fiction. Oh, these those, those are plays. Yeah. So okay. I was right. you know, during that workshop, wow. like started writing plays. Okay. Um, they were they were like really loose, rough ideas that really were based in my own, like just pulling, like mining my own history, and you know, like you know, I call it like a you know, like this time when I was a little kid, I I fell and I got a pebble stuck in my knee. And I couldn't get it out. So the skin just kind of grew over it. And then, you know, like a year or two later, my mom decided she was going to get it out. And so she took a little sewing needle and she for days on end would like keep coming at it to try and get that pebble out of my knee. And it hurt so bad. But when she finally pulled it out of my knee, um, she handed it to me and I'm holding it in my palm and there's blood and everything around it, but I've got this pebble and I can see it. And so a lot of those early days of, you know, learning how to write plays was me just pulling these pebbles out of my body and holding them in my hand and saying, oh, so here's this thing. And then putting it on a shelf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Later to be used. <laughs> and- Talk about the process of dialogue for you. Cause I mean, you know, there's that old, you know, therapist trick of having people role play puppets and all that, but you're, when you when you're writing a play and you're writing dialogue and you have to put yourself in other people's headspace to communicate this these things that are very personal to you, yeah. what was the impact of that for you? Was there a lot of therapeutic value? Did you find it a struggle to articulate some characters? What was that process like? Um, that I think is, you know, there's there's so there's the outward characters, the the ones that you know that that you understand from an external point of view. Um, those, and I think I take like, kind of like this weird hippie kind of organic (laughs) approach, but, um, I, uh, I sit with them and I hang out with them and on car rides, we have conversations. Um, we go on hikes together, walks together. They comment on my cooking. Um, you know, like we hang out together and, um, and I try to, to feel like I have a relationship with them to the point where I can guess what they're going to say. I just know what they're going to say. Um, and, uh, and when it comes to writing characters where I'm pulling from something that I know intimately, that I think is, (laughs) well, it's hard, but, um, you know, there is, Uh, the, the monologues that take place um, in, in uh, tampons and dead dogs and other disposable things like uh, there, there was one night, I think, where it finally clicked. And it wasn't that I was forcing anything. It was so much that I was just sitting with myself in the dark and I committed to writing whatever it was that she myself needed to say. And, um, and if I felt any hesitation, if my fingers 
hesitated for one second on the keyboard, that was the time to press harder, to force it to come out, to like, like push through that resistance. And, um, and there was like this moment of just kind of committing to that and where the, the, the fear and the doubt and that disconnect just went away and um, like I overcame it and then it was just a flood and and it was hard. like it's it's that you know like the, the deep down sobs that we get when we're crying sometimes like mm-hmm. we're just really trying to get something out it's that's what it feels like it feels like this thing that's so big inside of you um, and there's no <laughs> there's no place that is big enough to exit your body, except your yeah. fingertips. And, um, and, and so I am just letting that go. Um, and, you know, letting it be sloppy and messy and not judging it and just feeling it and, and giving permission to just know that everything that you have to say in that moment is the truth and it's honest and, nothing to be ashamed of when you wrote tampons what were you writing it for at that point what was the goal were you did were you think he was gonna was it just an exercise that had kind of developed or was there an intended recipient um, i was writing for survival Christina. yeah um i i was very much you know i was in therapy and really facing monsters <clears throat> For the first time in a way that um you know i you know my, my body got really sick during that time um i had uh, gotten a another kidney infection that put me in quarantine in the hospital and sent me home with a pick line with the strongest antibiotics they could possibly give me because my body just didn't you know it was just giving out and and i felt physically broken and I remember asking my therapist, like, I, can we stop now? I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and um, for better or worse, I don't know if she was right or wrong, but she said, I think this is the time for us to like really continue. And, um, you know, so when they sent me home with a pick line, like I still went to La Jolla Playhouse and I still wrote. Um, and uh, it was... There was a point in time when it stopped being a story that I was writing for the people at the table. Um, there was, a, it, it really truly became, if I don't, if I don't overcome the demons in this play, then I'm not going to overcome the demons in my real life. Mm. And so, um, so it was, it was war. It was honest to God war. And my, my tiny little room, my tiny little desk, my crappy little computer. <laughs> and, um, what's yeah. been, the, what's been the difference that you've noticed between your writing after tampons versus before? Have you noticed a big shift that oh, really, yeah, it blew things open for you? Uh, it, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, it's so funny. It's, it has nothing to do with exposure or or feeling like you're connecting to a wider audience um 
Francisco, one of one of the you know the guys at the table, um, said, "Hey, there's this um, bridge award, and I really think that you need to submit tampons." But tampons wasn't ready yet, um, and so I um I uh my job at the time was working HR at a Waldorf school in uh, San Diego. I went in on the weekend on the day of the deadline because he gave me an order and I had to do it. <laughs> and so I sat down and I spent five hours rewriting it. And, and it was so funny, like those five hours that I spent, like, cause I'd given it space. And so I came back to him like, okay, I'll, I'll submit it. Um, but uh, in those five hours, it changed the play and it made sense to me. Um, and so I really think that that play became more cohesive and understandable and relatable in those five hours right before the deadline. Like I took a screenshot of like the deadline, like I'm like, ha so I could send it to Francisco and she's yeah. like, I did it, <laughs> do what you said. Wow. But, um, but the real, you know, so, but I remember like hitting submit and then it's just like, <sighs> and then rereading it like a couple of days later and, and thinking like, I think this is what I was like, this is, this is what I, I went through this. I went through what she mm -hmm. went through in this play. I, I did this. This is very, it's so, so close. It's not my story, but it is very much my story. And, um, and then, uh, when, um, Erica Newhouse from ATAP called me to let me know that I was a finalist, that blew my mind because I'm like, Oh, you read that. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, and then, you know, that it started, I started to get this feeling like, you know, maybe I should finish these other stories that I have. Um, maybe, maybe somebody might want to like hear, hear that. And then, um, and then I was at the, the San Diego library and I got off on the fourth floor um, when they called me, um, Erica called me to let me know that I had won. And this is so cheesy. I'm going to tell you a lot of really cheesy things that I said. I'm, I'm open to it. I'm here for it. <laughs> but I was like, so, so cheesy. This is like along the lines of the whole, like, my soul is in this play. <laughs> um, but I was like, I just immediately, like the little girl in me, just said, oh, I want to be where the brave artists are. And um, and that was so tacky and cheesy, but it was it still is so fucking true. I um I very much want to be in the business of of creating and working on things that are terrifying and hard and difficult. Um and uh you know and then she she read to me what Tony Kushner uh, wrote about the story and about me and he called me a playwright mm. and, and that was the first time I was like oh is that is that what I can do is this something that I can do mm. is this the way for me to swim through the ocean and is this the thing inside of me that will give me propulsion and it very much has and um you know and the story that I'm working on right now is this idea of coming home and and the idea and all of this synthesis kind of came fairly recently because, you know, when you're about to birth a story, that's when you realize that all the answers you thought you had, you don't have. And so there's those like that 11th hour mess of understanding, which I am in the process of right now with a story, but yeah. something has 
become very, very clear to me. And that is, you know, I was in the hospital with another kidney infection and they were trying to figure out whether or not they were going to admit me. And this doctor, um, came in, he was observing me. I could tell he was just trying to figure out what to do with me, but we got into this like conversation about just religion and life and, you know, trauma. And, and he said this thing, it's like, you know, I, I've learned that like home is not what people think it is. People think that home is, is the house that you go to or, or the husband or the wife that you're, you know, that you have or your children or your dog, like home isn't any of those things. Home is your body. And I immediately thought, you know, I need to get this IV sticking out of my arm and I feel like shit. And I think about all of the times that I have abandoned my body from age eight, you know, when I was in the military, um, all these moments and how the cycle of abandonment, you know, like I abandoned my child, just like I abandoned myself. You know, I left my, my child when he was eight. And, and I am, you know, I experienced my first trauma at eight and, uh, and, um, and now my, my, my child, you know, he was a him then, but he is now she, um, and going through the process of transitioning into a girl. And so, you know, Tristan is going through her own understanding of home and body. And so, the story that I'm working on right now is, is how do we find our way home and trying to figure that out. And so I have until the end of this residency to write my child and whomever else, a letter saying, this is how I found my way home and home. Yeah. It's in your body, but I believe that that home has more to do with, kind of coming to terms with the past, accepting all the things that have happened and all the choices that you've made that have put you in the place where you are right now in this very moment. And it's not just accepting those things, but forgiving those things and allowing them to be. And it's really about how we come into our bodies is, is through self-love. It's, it's love. <laughs> Again, a thousand cheesy things that I will No, say. no, 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 no. I mean, no, listen, it's, it's, it's earned melodrama. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, uh, it's one thing to kind of pontificate it, you know, 10 years old. It's another thing when you've lived a life that kind of justifies that kind of language. Um, at this point, seeing how your career is gaining more and more traction do you still consider yourself a playwright first and foremost? Is it your first love? Where does it rank in all the writing that you do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, I, I, I will say, and, and again, you know, um, it's been, you know, I feel like a lot of my, the yeses, you know, that I get along the way have been during the, the age of COVID. And so I, I haven't worked on a set just yet. Um, you know, I've been screenwriting and, and working in the virtual reality arena and, um, you know, and, and 
working on theater through Zoom. <laughs> but um, I can tell you right now that I, you know, based off of like something that I get to do in April, that there is nothing more powerful um, than feeling that, like sharing that physical space with other people. Um, and, and it's, it's an invitation. It's an intention. When, when an audience shows up, they are, they are showing up with intention and an openness. And it is our job as theater makers to meet them in that space and to continue to invite them moment to moment while they're in those, those spaces, while they're inside those doors. And, and if we do our job well, if, we, if we're able to achieve the goal that we really want, then we all get to walk out of that theater with like just that change, that shift yeah. and feeling like we're, you know, maybe a little bit more home within ourselves. Um, well, yeah. And then that communal bonding of, of what, of your mental shift that you went through with your work now translating to all these people that now get to have that shared experience yeah. and, and, there, and it's a buy-in you're absolutely right. It's a buy-in from the audience, which is what makes it different from film and TV, right? That you're there and you have to, there's a bit of commitment on the part of the audience as well. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. But I, I will say like, I, I think that the reason why theater is, you know, like, like, the, the the love is you know like that's that's <laughs> very real um for me is the um those early days of story development you know yeah i get it with you know when you're sitting at a table of screenwriters and like that's that's amazing as well but i think in theater like the the way that you collaborate and communicate with with people understanding that that the end goal in that shared space, that the intent and the commitment is slightly different. Um, and it's so inward. And um, I, so I, I love like that's, that's that right there is like the juicy, like, you know, like we're really, really like that part of theater is really sexy to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, you know, sharing like ugly space, you know, while you're trying to morph something together. What do you find helpful as a writer in those early stages, in those delicate early moments when you're really trying to sort through the process? Do you find a dramaturg helpful? Do you find an insightful director helpful? Do you find just, is it a personality-based thing that you need the right people there? What, what do you find helpful in your process? In the early days, I think grace. <laughs> grace is really helpful. Um, um, I, I, I think that it's good to bounce ideas off of, you know, dramaturgs or trusted, trusted people. Um, I really, I really think that you need to know your boundaries as an artist, especially in the early days uh, in development. Um, you really need to know, who is somebody that is going to allow you to let your own ideas flourish instead of kind of imposing their own ideas? Um, because I think there's a, a point in time where you transition from here's the thing 
that 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 pulpy, juicy, emotional thing. Because this is what we use to connect to people is this emotion. Yeah. yeah. You know, like a Billy Ray mentor says, you know, like what is a simple emotional journey? And like you'd kind of have to sit with that for a while. So in the early, early days, I think that you really have to um, allow yourself a lot of grace and space um, to to allow that to come out organically, naturally, and and share it with people that have a deep understanding of of you and and your story and will support that in a way that's not um, that doesn't impede any crazy thing that's going to come your way. Um, but then, you know, eventually, like, I think space and time between uh, readings and, um, and yeah, uh, having a good, solid, logical person for me, that's Lucy Tabergen. Like, she, she asked me questions about tampons that I'm like, ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just finished, um, like, maybe a month ago, my last draft of that play. And I finally was able to answer some of her questions that, that wow. I really, really battled with. And I resisted for a long time because I'm like, yeah, but that's not what I'm trying to say. But she's right. Um, yeah. And, you know, like somebody like that outside perspective to say like, hey, I, I know that you're connecting with yourself and your, your, your tight group of, you know, other writers. But here's how you can connect right. people don't know who the hell you are. (laughs) Yeah. How important is that first audience feedback for you? Um, Have you done readings where it's been staged and where, you know, an audience can, where you get that initial rush of feedback and go, Oh, interesting. That didn't land or that did land. And I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Um, I I think any, any and all feedback, um, any, any reaction, any response, I, I, I absorb it all. I absorb it all. Um, and then I, I like watching other playwrights as they navigate readings. Um, there was a, a play um, reading the DNA series at La Jolla and uh, an audience member asked a question that was, you know, really, it was a really wonderful, insightful question, but it was one of those questions like, what does this mean? You know, along that vein. Yeah. And she just kind of tilted her head. And she smiled, you know, through her little mask and she she just nodded her head like, hmm, good question. And then there was this awkward silence and then everybody laughed because she's not going to answer that question. That's for you to answer. So um, I think, you know, I'm totally stealing that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good line. Yeah, yeah, good response. Yeah. But I, uh, I I think that it's really important to um, to hear. I like sitting in the back. I like watching how the audience moves, you know, who's yawning, um, who's laughing, how are they leaning in? When are they leaning back? When are they comfortable? Um, you know, you can see how things might be dragging out. Um, you know, and these are things that I'm learning as I go. Um, yeah. So I, you know, especially during COVID, like that's worse. The readings on zoom <laughs> and then relying on like email feedback later. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's not in the moment. It's, you know, well, it seems like theater is, uh, as much as it's suffered from COVID, it is also, in so many respects, an antidote to COVID and to the the separation, you know. Um, and 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 not to not to get too meta with this, but I mean, even in general, I think just the separation, the the split, the schism in any number of things in the country. I think theater is a communal piece, and its ability to bring people together, I think, is inherently helpful. Um, when are we going to see tampons on stage performed 
in full or has it already been done and I just wasn't tracking? So, you know, I, again, like, I think, I think that there was a part of me, I think that Lucy had asked me questions that I, I couldn't answer just yet. Um, so I, um, I just finished the latest draft, um, that I think, I think I'm finally ready to start submitting it out in the world. Um, I haven't, I haven't submitted it anywhere yet. I haven't even put it up on the new play exchange, wow. Um, wow. but, uh, but, um, it, cause it's just, it was such a deeply personal story and, and it, you know, um, so I'm, I'm finally ready to like, let it out in the wild. And this really amazing thing is happening, Christopher in April. Um, uh, Chris Cole, um, he was an intern with ATAF. Um, I was out in New York, um, for their Broadway event mm-hmm. uh, in November and, uh, we were all meeting up and talking and, um, it was, uh, the idea was put out there that maybe tampons would be excellent, um, for a reading at the air force Academy, um, during their sexual assault prevention month. Um, so ATAF, you know, they, they go around, uh, to different bases all over the world and they pull in amazing talent. Um, and they do these stage, these elevated staged readings. Right. Right and uh, have conversations. And so um, Tampons is going to have uh, three amazing readings at the Air Force Academy um, in mid-April. Wow. Uh, and, you know, each performance, 2,500 seats. And um, and so we're going to have an opportunity to really get some amazing audience feedback but also you know this this play is about what it means to <laughs> that's that's a tagline you know it's a, it's called tampons dead dogs and other disposable things and the tagline is it's a play about tampons dead dogs and what it means to survive and um so it's going to uh you know, be a, a way to talk about military sexual trauma um, in a way that I think is like for the first time, I really can see how this play is going to um, have an impact in a way that uh, I always wanted <laughs> um, in the way that I was writing to, to survive for myself. Like I sure. see this as, as something that I want to say to somebody else. Do you feel like you're done with it, with that part of the story? Do you feel, and I don't just mean editing, but do you feel like a weight's been lifted? Like that's, hey, I got it. That that happened. I'm, I, I got that off my chest. That is out there. It's going to do what it needs to do. And I can move on either emotionally, artistically, in other ways to other stories. Or do you feel like, no, no, that's one small facet and there's, I, I, I need to go back down that that wormhole a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I, a huge weight has been lifted. Um, and you know, there, there is, I think you're absolutely right. You know, when you, when you say and open it up for like a more honest answer, which is, yes, it is only a faction. Um, you know, it, it is talking about cycles, um, and the way that, you know, we experience something, but, it continually evolves through our body um, over time and our relationship with that history 
changes and evolves over time mm-hmm. and the choice that we make, um, how are we going to have a, a healthier relationship with my history so that I can kind of keep going down my trail. And, um, and so it is, is talking about that specifically, you know, the, the relationship that we have with trauma over time, over a lifetime. And, um, and there are other things that I have to say about this topic, but there's also like so many other things that I want to say about just our experience here. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, this last year I, I wrote my first joyful play that was about dance and, you know, like hope and, you know, like all these like wonderful, beautiful, happy things. And, um, you know, and yeah, it was heavy and dark, but <laughs> but it was more, you know, it was more just lighthearted. And was that conscious? Was that a conscious choice for you to go, Hey, I really want to do a lighthearted thing or did the story, did it just naturally happen to evolve that way? Yeah. So I had, um, you know, here's a funny part. Yeah. So I did have, um, I, I conscious choice. I want to write something that's joyful. And so, um, so I did, and then something very dark happened in my life that I had to wrestle with. <laughs> so I, I made that like this, you know, that was my night of the dark soul moment that I could right. into this joyful wow. play. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Maybe it's a happy accident. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, now but yeah so i am you know uh the book that i'm writing is is a lot about you know all of the things that we talked about today coming home and doing bodies and and why a book well why did was it just the best medium to possibly capture everything you wanted to say yeah yeah, i'm a firm believer that you know the story tells you what format it needs to be told in and um and this this is really a deep dive into my relationship with my child, um, who is, you know, she's struggling with depression, has expressed suicidal ideations. And, um, you know, she has my permission to, to share this. Um, but you know, she's going through her own struggle with her body. And so I can't ignore, you know, my own struggle to kind of come into my own body. And, and so that's, that's the story that I need to, to work on right now. And, and the only way that I can, you know, pull all of these crazy, you know, cause it's yeah. three threads that kind of weave together. And, um, and the, yeah, a book is the only way that I can really, and maybe one day I can like adapt it into a screenplay, but mm-hmm. it's really, it, it needs to live as, as a book, um, you know, and I wasn't even calling it a book for a long time. I refused to call it a book. I'm like, it's just my manuscript, like <laughs> a series of stories <laughs> together. Well, um, now, and now I feel really guilty because I know here you are in this semi-monastic place trying to dig deep and get it done. And yet we've talked for hours and I've taken you out of it and forced you to take a 30,000 foot view of your life and career. But that's, that's what I'm doing. But, so it's actually like the perfect time to do okay. it. Like, this is, this is great. Um, you know, this is like sitting at the table with somebody and workshopping something. Good. Um, so no, Good. I, I'm glad. I appreciate the invitation to, to talk and I look forward to getting to know you and, um, likewise. And I mean, I, I can't wait for the next time and, and you know, as things develop and as more stuff comes out, you know, stay in touch, uh, you know, let me know how that stuff's going and, and let's have you back on. There's so much more to talk about. And especially when other plays are coming up, uh, you know, 
I can't wait to see what else you start churning out. I'm so happy to share all of that. All right, Cherie. <laughs> I'll talk to you down the road. All right. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. That was the savage wonder of Cherie Engel. I wasn't lying, right? It's one hell of an episode. Um, I can't wait to get Cherie back on the show as she gets as more projects develop for her. Um, I can't wait for her to submit her work to us, in which case I will not have her back on the show for a little while, probably. But I, uh, but I can't wait to catch up with her again. Uh, just that was a that was a a, a great one. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast about warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. Check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org. That's kind of your one-stop shop for all things vet rep related. We have our Savage Wonder Festival coming up on Memorial Day. We have uh, you know, our this podcast, we have our literary blog, we have our Write Loud events on Instagram Live. We have an awful lot of stuff going on, considering that we're not even doing live shows uh, yet. Those will start up on April 2nd, I believe. Um, So starting every Saturday from April 2nd, pretty much till the end of the year, with a couple of weeks off here and there, uh, we'll be having live shows of uh, some fun stuff, mostly to give our actors a workout, uh, to have a little bit of fun in our parlor on Quaker Avenue. But we got a lot of lines of effort going on. So check out what's going on with us. Go to vetrep.org. If you like reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. Uh, You can go to our Now Playing tab at vetrep.org. Click the Now Playing tab. You'll see the option to subscribe to the Literary Blog. You'll also see the option to subscribe to this podcast. If you're listening to us on iTunes, by the way, throw that five-star review out there. That would be awesome. Um, We'd love to get your feedback. You can give us a follow and send us feedback anytime. Uh, If you're on Twitter, or Instagram, we are at Vet Rep Theater, V-E-T-R-E-P Theater, T-H-E-A, I don't know how to spell, T-H-E-A-T-E-R on Twitter or Instagram. And if you're on Facebook, we are at Veterans Repertory Theater. And I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. It is R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y. And again, theater is E-R, not R-E for our intents and purposes. So give us a follow. Send us your feedback. We'd love to hear your thoughts uh, and and feedback from all the stuff we're doing. And again, you can always find that at vetrep, V-E-T-R-E-P dot org. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to the literary blog, and you are a veteran or an immediate family member of a veteran, please go to vetrep.org again and go to our submissions tab, and you will see all the information you need on how to submit yeah, you know, all the fine print and legalese, you know, and and uh, drop down menus that you could ask for, and we look forward to seeing any of your work if you submit there. As always, thanks to our producer Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.